You know, I don't want to um, stereotype or for sure sound sexist, but I am a man, which means I do not do stores. Well, except Lowe's. Hardware. After many years of marriage, my wife Tana and I have things pretty well figured out uh, by now. For example, if we go to Winston and she wants to wander through, say, Target, I'll go in with her, spend a few minutes, buy an expensive coffee, and then go back and sit in the car where I have a good book to read. I always have a good book to read. It works for her. I like it. It works for me. She can stay in there as long as she wants. I'll just read or nap or watch the guys walking in with their wives who haven't quite figured it out yet. I want to yell out my window, you have a perfectly good seat in the car. I especially don't do grocery stores. I mean, I am vaguely aware that there are produce, meat, and freezer sections, but then there is everything else. So how do you find stuff? Tanner recently sent me to the grocery store with a short list that included pimentos. I searched for hours to find the olives. I thought that made sense. Who knew pimentos would not be by the olives, that they are on a completely different aisle? Who decides this stuff? Apparently not a man. Tana can go to the grocery store and fill a cart in minutes. If she sends me to the store with a list of five items, it'll take me about five hours. She is a list person, so every once in a while I'll notice she has a very long to-do list on Monday and her day off, so I will, I will volunteer to do something for her. And before you know it, before I can grab them back, the words are coming out of my mouth, I'll go to the grocery store for you. She gives me the list, and on the way there, I'm like, what was I thinking? What have I done? I'll be there for hours. But I've discovered a trick. Walk up to a person who works there. I have figured out that they are the ones with the vests on. You maybe knew that. It took me a while. When you walk up, look lost and forlorn, my normal look in a grocery store. Show them the list and ask, do you know where any of this stuff is? If you are lucky, they will fill your cart for you. So that has nothing to do with my sermon other than this. We have a list today, and it's a bit like a grocery list of things found, frankly, all over the store. And I had a choice to make. Do it like Tana and cover it in 15 minutes. (laughs) Now get your hopes up. Or do it like me and take a few weeks. I decided it'll probably be a little longer than 15 minutes, but I made the decision to try and cover it this morning. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I suggested that the author gets to the end of his letter of Hebrews and starts giving quick, rapid-fire instructions like your parents did when you first left home. That's especially true in chapter 13. There are lots of ethical instructions, a bit like a grocery list. And in fact, it seems that a bit unlike this brilliant author, which has caused some to suggest that he didn't actually write it. It was later added. Maybe it was written by Paul since he wrote so many lists. All kinds of crazy suggestions. To be clear, he wrote it. He uses some of the same language, some of the same vocabulary. But 
But join with me as we wander through the store. We're, 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 I'm just going to forewarn you. We're going we're to finish. There's one ethical instruction, and it's going to feel like we just turned the cart around and are going the other way. Yeah, we are. But when we get to the end, when my wife sends me to get saffron, I have no idea what that stuff is, but I know it's going to be good because she's a great cook. I promise you, stick with me, and we'll have a great meal together. Look at it with me. Hebrews 13, verses 1 and following say this. Let the love of the brothers continue... Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage. Do you see? Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Do you see the list? Just one thing right after the other. He does seem to be all over the place, and yet, these ethical instructions, similar to these, are found all over the Scripture. Brotherly love, hospitality, remembering prisoners, sexual purity. And I'm going to call this last one pursuing contentment rather than covetousness. Jesus, Paul, Peter, um, uh, many others talk often about this ethical Christian behavior. You see, if we are indeed followers of Christ, then these uh, these qualities ought to be characteristic of our lives. If we are followers of of Jesus, uh, enduring to the end, running our respective races, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin uh, that so easily entangles, if we are offering to God acceptable um, service, as we looked at last week, then we will pursue these things in ever-increasing measure. In fact, they form our outline, starting with continue in brotherly love. And I'm going to suggest that family love is is actually kind of the theme of these verses. They actually, there actually is a bit of a connection here. He's going to tell us some things that we need to love and some, something that we should not. Let love of the brothers, that is the Christian family, brothers and sisters, continue. It's, it's more literally, uh, as a command, continue in, remain in family Brotherly love. That word remain is, is, is the last word of verse 27 when he says some things are going to be shaken and, and, and are going to disappear. Some things will remain. Apparently, brother love is, brotherly love is going to remain, which means you've got to put up with me in heaven. The word is Philadelphia, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Think about it. These readers were struggling, facing significant trials. They were finding that it was very difficult, very challenging to be a Christian. And outside pressure like that can bind a group of believers together or it can tear them apart. And so he says, remain committed in love to one another when you need each other most. Don't turn on each other. Don't bite and devour one another. Love one another. I can't help but think of Jesus' um, words to his disciples the night of the Last Supper, the night of his betrayal. You, you, may, you may remember that. Uh, he is shortly going to talk, about, uh, talk with them in the next hour or so about the coming um, persecution on their way to Gethsemane. 
So, so, but the last thing he says, in the upper room, before they depart, he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me say it clearly. The mark of being a follower of Jesus, of persevering to the end, even in the midst of trial, is family love. And I am, by the way, talking about the people in this room. Paul says it this way. Now, as to the love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write you, even though everybody does. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We're going to come back to that verse. Peter says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brothers, fervently, deeply, passionately love one another from the heart. John says, this is the message which we, uh, you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. What does he mean? From the beginning, at the last supper, love one another. Do you see over and over in the Scripture, the early followers of Jesus got it. Let me say it again. The mark of the Christian is our love for one another. I would go so, be so bold as to say no love, no faith. The word Philadelphia at this time spoke of the natural attachment to one's blood relatives. It was kind of a kindred love. Think of it, blood brothers and sisters, well, they may not always get along, but they do love each other. So when the word was brought into the Christian context, the Christian faith, it was used to speak of the attachment we have as spiritual family, meaning it is still a kindred love because we are, after all, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of those concepts which has become so familiar that it perhaps has lost its meaning. I mean, if you, if you are close to a blood brother or sister, you know that it's a special relationship. It's a, it's a love you share by nature of the fact that you share the same parents. As Christians, we are members of one spiritual family. We all have the same father. Years ago... Uh, when I was in, in the restaurant industry, I had a, a guy that I worked with. His name was Mike. Uh, he, was, he was black, and uh, I'm, I'm still white. <laughs> and, um, and I had the great privilege of leading him to faith in Jesus Christ. We became quite to, uh, close. He became part of our family. And we started this habit in, uh, at, uh, uh, at the restaurant of calling each other bro or brother. And people noticed that. And they would scratch their heads and they say, you call each other brother, why? And we would smile and say, well, we have different mothers, but we have the same father. <laughs> and you would see this look, this puzzled look come over. They didn't get it. They just turned and walked away, but it's true. We have the same father. Within that family, we are to experience a kindred love, a brotherly love. In fact, notice Paul said, when it comes to brotherly love, I don't ha really have to write you about it. Why? Because it is a, just like a love uh, between siblings in a blood family that should be natural, so also love in God's family is not only natural, but supernatural. You are actually taught by God to love one another. This tells me a couple of things about this brotherly love. First, again, it is a supernatural love. It, it, is, it is not, to be clear, it is not something we can produce within ourselves. Okay? I'm not going to sit here and berate you and, and encourage you and challenge you. Love each other, love each other, love each other. 
Well, actually I am. But it's because you have the Holy Spirit within you by which you can do it. It's not something you can muster up in your own strength and willpower. It comes again from the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, it is listed as the first of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We love, you see, because He first loved us. He gave us His Son. He gave us His Spirit by whom we love, which means further, listen carefully. Because I know right now you're not going to agree with me. Christian brotherly love is something that you will not experience outside the church of Jesus Christ. There is an intensity of love in the body of Christ that is unique to us. And right now, some of you are thinking, that's not true, Scott. I have felt more love and more care and more concern from non-Christian from, from non co-workers or non-Christian fellow students than I have felt in the church. And to that, I would say the issue is not that these non-Christians are, are loving like the church, but rather the church is not loving like we should and could. You see, ours is a God-given God-taught, supernatural love, which means we ought to feel love. We ought to give love in a special way when we're together. And I know you are sitting there and you are thinking, but sometimes I don't. I know. I, I know. That's why so many authors of Scripture remind us it is a command. Love one another. We are to be growing in our love for each other. And you have all that you need to be able to do it. He's called the Holy Spirit. Turn the card around. At least to the second thing I would say about this brotherly love. It will be um, evident in the life of the believer. That is, not to say that it doesn't need to grow, but it will be present in the life of true believers. It has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I've said this over and over again. I'm going to say it again this morning. You cannot say, I love Jesus. It's Christians I cannot stand. How many, how many times have you talked to people who say, well, I, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I just don't like the church. You can't say that. John is very clear in his first epistle that if you say that you love God but you don't love the brothers, then you are, his words, you're a liar. What does he mean? God's, you don't know God. Let brotherly love continue. 17th century Jewish philosopher once wrote, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of possessing the Christian religion, they say they, love, they have love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men. I am amazed that they should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily toward one another. 
such bitter hatred that, that this, rather than the virtues which they supposedly possess, is the readiest criteria, criteria of their faith. Did you catch what he said? To this Jewish unbeliever observing the church, the clearest display of the Christian faith was not their love, but was their fighting and hatred toward each other. And the words of Jesus come rushing back to our minds. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus said the clearest criteria of our faith proof that we know him is our family love. I find this incredibly fascinating. We will be known as Christians not necessarily by our theological aptitude, not by our big, beautiful buildings with crosses on top, not even by the beautiful cross that you may wear around your neck or have tattooed on your arm, not even necessarily by our good deeds, not even necessarily by our love for the world, but by our love for one another. Let's keep going rather than continuing to wander down this particular aisle. Again, I'm suggesting that these things are somewhat connected. He says in verse 2, As you love one another, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Much to say about this, and some of you are excited. Angels! First, the definition of hospitality is to take strangers into your home for the purpose of caring for them, feeding them, shelter, maybe even clothing them. In fact, the word hospitality to strangers is one word in the Greek because that's what it means. In fact, it carries with it the word philea, love of strangers. It begs the question, is he saying we should show hospitality to everyone we don't know, believers and unbelievers alike? And it, it, that is true. Uh, the, uh, within the, in the Middle East, particularly, hospitality was a very high value. But given the context, most agree he's talking about hospitality to Christian strangers, to those we do not know. You see, at this time, inns were notoriously expensive and unsafe. And so traveling believers, those who were taking the gospel abroad especially, needed safe places to stay. Show them hospitality. Bring them in. Care for them. Speed them on their way. In fact, the Didache, which was a, 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 an early writing on the ethics of Christianity, said, bring them in, let them stay one night or at the most two. If they stay three, they're a false teacher. When you send them on their way, they said, give them a loaf of bread. If they ask for money, they're a false teacher. Take that, Benny. Notice a couple other things. First, he says, for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. To be clear, this is not, to be, this is not meant to be the motivation. The motivation is our love for other believers. But he's pointing out, some without knowing it have cared for angels. He no doubt has in mind at least Abraham and Lot at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When when these angelic beings appeared to Abraham to tell him of the coming destruction, Abraham prepared a meal uh, for these strangers, two of of whom happened to be angels. The third was none other than the Lord himself. And when those two angels arrived in Sodom to rescue Lot and his family, Lot showed them hospitality by harboring them in his own home. As we care for each other, we get the added bonus of perhaps caring for God's angelic messengers. And we go, yay, angels, I can't wait. No doubt red hair, Irish accent. This would be so cool. I might entertain an angel. Not the point. 
It's not the motivation. We get all excited about the possibility of serving God's angels, God's servants, when we should get excited, listen carefully about the possibility of loving one another and caring for not servants but God's children. That's what we are. That's the motivation. It's just angels, that's just gravy. The, 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 the meat, the, the, the real truth is caring for each other. Other thing to notice, again, is the context of caring for Christians, strangers, those we do not know. They could be travelers, but hey, we've got motels and hotels on every street corner, especially here in Boone. What about Christians you don't know right in this room? Is hospitality, inviting them in to feed them, meet needs, a way of loving one another? Other Authors of Scripture seem to indicate that it is. Paul, in his long list of ethical instructions in Romans 12, says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. The, the holy ones, believers, practicing hospitality. Peter says, be hospitable, ready, to one another without complaint. I find that interesting. Don't complain about it. So here's a question. To whom are you showing Hospitality. One of my commentators asked the question this way. How many people know the way to your dining room table? Uh, wow. To whom are you demonstrating the love of Christ by spending time with them, having them in your home, even if you don't know them? To know that they are a brother or a sister is enough. I want you to start thinking of your homes as Christian Airbnbs. Point three, verse three. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them um, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. An amazing verse. The whole context here seems to be pointing to these Christian relationships. Just like showing hospitality, visiting prisoners is an act of Christian love. So remember the prisoners. That is those who are prisoners because of their faith in Jesus as though in prison with them. We've talked about this before. Prisoners were dependent on the care of outsiders, uh, even food and water. Uh, family members, for example, would come and bring them food daily. If they didn't, they would starve. But to care for prisoners is also to identify with them to show that you are a family, family member. Exactly. As Christians, when, then when you cared for Christians incarcerated because of their faith, you were identifying with them as a family member and putting yourself at great personal risk. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 when he separates the sheep from the goats. When I was in prison, you visited me. But when did we see you in prison, Jesus? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it for me. We also remember these original readers had done so in the past. Chapter 10 says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. I love that verse. It says, when you became a Christian, you started to suffer. Right. It's a package deal. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. You said, they can have my stuff. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. 
So they had been they had been visiting those in prison, suffering along with those who were ill-treated because they themselves were also in the body. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, well, yeah, since we're in the body of Christ. And that is true, but every time this author uses the word body, he's talking about the physical body. Suffer with those in prison. Suffer with those who are ill-treated because you're still here. (laughs) You're still physical. And guess what? You have your share of suffering as well. Again, this means they loved each other, even though it may cost them to demonstrate that love. They identify publicly with being followers of Jesus by loving and caring for followers of Jesus. Which brings us to verse 4, where the author takes a bit of a turn, but I would suggest is still related to godly family love. You see, we are to love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love the Christian family, even those we don't know, by opening our homes and showing hospitality. We are to love those in prison by putting ourselves at personal risk and going to to visit them. Uh, We are to identify with those who are mistreated. Fourth, we are to love with a godly love our spouses. He throws that in at no extra charge. You see, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Let's start with that. In a society where mari- when marriage was often a mere convenience for procreation, so you could pass on the family name, when extramarital relationships were the norm, the author says, no, 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 not for you, honor marriage. Hold it in high esteem, in highest value. So today, as marriage is being redefined or discarded altogether, we are to hold in high esteem, we are to honor marriages. So I'm reading, and I thought I would scour the internet looking for current marriage stats. They're everywhere. Suffice it to say, for the first time in American history, the majority of adults are living outside of marriage as single, divorced, cohabitating, etc. After all, one of the main uh, major benefits of marriage, he's going to talk about this quite frankly in a moment can be enjoyed outside the marriage relationship today. We even have this crazy category called friends with benefits. That is abhorrent. We, however, as followers of Jesus, submitting to Scripture should honor marriage and those who have demonstrated a high and loyal commitment to one another. And we should certainly do nothing to interfere with those relationships, but rather to seek to support and to honor them. He goes a step further. The marriage bed, again, talking frankly about the sexual relationship, is to be undefiled, meaning the sexual relationship is to be found and guarded solely within marriage. To be very clear, sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. Four, fornicators and adulterers will be judged by God. The scripture is clear. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God because by their lifestyle, and I'm talking about lifestyle. I'm not talking about about, uh, when you sinned sexually, found forgiveness for that, that you have been excluded from the kingdom. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a lifestyle of sexual immorality. They prove that they do not know Christ. You prove that you do not know Christ. And so I would plead with you to turn from sexual immorality. He defines it as fornication 
and adultery. Simply defined, fornication, which gives uh, us our word pornography, is any illicit sexual activity like premarital sexual relations, homosexual sexual, uh, homosexual relations, or por- pornography, which is simply lust, are all soundly, roundly condemned in Scripture. Adultery is sexual intimacy outside the marriage relationship, again, clearly condemned because the marriage bond is to be honored, the marriage bed undefiled. You could hear a pin drop. So let's turn the cart. Finally, verses five and six. In keeping with the theme of love, love God and prove it by your trust in his provision. So you love your brothers and sisters. You love the brothers and sisters you don't know by showing hospitality. You love the prisoners and those ill-treated. You love your spouse with a holy uh, uh, love, and you love God, and you trust in his provision. But by the way, I should point out that sexual immorality is connected to greed or covetousness in Scripture because both, listen, both are a desire for that which you cannot or should not have. For example, in Ephesians 5, but immorality, sexual immorality, or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints or Christians. In Colossians 3, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Which amounts to idolatry. What? How does this amount to idolatry? Because it is wanting what you cannot or should not have more than wanting what God has provided for you. Idolatry. By the way, just as I suggested earlier, that those in living in sexual immorality will be judged by God and the immoral person will not inherit the kingdom of God, God's word, Paul says the same thing about the greedy and covetous, and the covetous, really. This is hard to hear, especially in the American church. Because I can have all the stuff that I want and throw a little Jesus in the mix. Ephesians 5 goes on to say, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of, God, of Christ and God. These are strong words, yet they remind us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Who has your heart? Look at verses five and six. They go together. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. That's... Interesting, earlier, he, again, he said, love the Christian family. Then he said, uh, show hospitality, which is love of strangers. Here he says, but there's something I don't want you to love, and that's money. We remember the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, combining this idea of, trust, idea of trusting God and his provision as opposed to greed and covetousness or the American way of life. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Food and covering. For those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. You see, this is his concern. They'd, ha- they'd lost their property. They'd lost their jobs perhaps and they, were, they, they, they began, they, they were perhaps considering coveting what they did not have and we are reminded that to do so is to wander away, wander away from the faith. Trading the faith for stuff. Pierce themselves with many griefs. You see, trusting God in his provision for you, finding contentment in his provision for you, loving God rather than money is what he is talking about. Being content with what you have. He himself, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, that is, leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's a combination of a number of verses in the Old Testament, most notably found in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. They're getting ready to go in and take the land. A little concerned about that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But how often do we quote Hebrews 13 out of its context? Yes, it is true that Jesus will never leave nor forsake us. Yes, it is true he will walk with us. But the context is, in doing so, he will take care of our needs. Be content with what he has provided. He will never leave us. So, greed and covetousness are unnecessary. Because we have Jesus, you see. And he has our best in mind. By the way, we're typically and probably right to apply this to Jesus because at the end of the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course, we understand that he sent his spirit to be both with and in us. Verse six, because we have Jesus, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. We need to speak that truth to ourselves as we are struggling day by day. And maybe it feels like that we don't have all of our wants met or maybe even some of our needs. The Lord is my helper. That's the context. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The quote of Psalm 118 uses it to encourage us. Whatever we have or don't have, whatever we are facing in trials and opposition, he is our helper. What can man do to us? that God does not know and does not allow. He has our best in mind, so trust him. Out of time, amazing. We made our way through a long grocery list, interesting list, but upon close examination, it's based on family love. We love the Christian family, even those we don't know, even those we don't know in this room. It is enough that they are followers of Jesus. We love by showing hospitality. We love and care for those who are suffering, mistreated because of their faith. We loyally love our respective spouses and and remain faithfully committed. We love God, not money, and trust his provision for us, knowing that he is with us. So put all of that together. There's a bunch of ingredients. Put it all together, and it makes for a very great meal. Verse 